If you would take your scriptures and turn with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 8, we'll be reading verses 1 through 15. Second Corinthians 8, 1 through 15. Would you give ear to the reading of God's word? Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of ministering to the saints. And not only as we have hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. So we urged Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. But as you abound in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and diligence and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. And in this, I give advice it is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you must also must complete the doing of it that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what he has done, what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much has nothing left over, and he who gathered little has no lack. God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. O Lord, our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning to open your word and seek our understanding of how you sent your only begotten Son into this world. We know you sent him to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Help us to grow in our knowledge, undergirding our faith. Take the truths of your word. Pick us up and guide us to you. No greater gift has been have, have we yet been given than the word that draws us to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. Thank you for giving us such knowledge. We thank you in Christ's holy name. Amen. Now, this may seem like a strange verse to be using for a, a message on the incarnation. Because this verse is about stewardship and about giving. What's the greatest gift we've received? Is it not Christ and him come in the flesh to save us from our sins? We're facing in this nation a time of, of real crisis. It's a time that requires a genuine faith. A faith built on truth. Man is not to be the authority that tells us 
what to do with our lives. What we need to do is find the divine principles, which is the ground for the Christian's life. Then we can have we can have we have to give credence as to how God calls us to live our lives. What happens if we don't follow that path? Do you remember the first sin of man? It was an act of rebellion fueled by a sense of pride. Because of that sin, all men were plunged into a life filled with rebellion and pride. We think far more of ourselves than is ever true about us. Our problem is never a lack of self-esteem or self-reliance, but an overabundance of of self-confidence and pride. As we consider the wonderful incarnation of our Lord, we, we can learn from him and his actions how we as his people should conduct ourselves. The things that should jump off the pages of scripture at you as you read about this, this blessed event is that humi- the humiliation of Christ, the humiliation he suffered in taking on human flesh and blood. Have you ever really stopped and thought about that? It's something we should think about often. The first thing we should consider is what we mean when we speak of humiliation. In our language, the term humiliation has come to mean that one has been made a fool of. He has been shamed. He's been degraded. In a more genteel day, humiliation meant simply a lowering of station or a change in status. Christ's humiliation does not suggest that the world has made a fool of him. It means he came. He lowered himself by taking on flesh and blood. This is the creator God of the universe. He's coming into his own creation as a part of that creation. Is that not amazing? The humiliation of Christ simply refers to the low and humble estate into which Christ placed himself. This is what Paul means in Philippians when he speaks of the the emptying of himself in glory, or that he took upon himself the form of a servant. The text for this message is in 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. He humbled himself. Why? In order to help you. That's the only reason he did this, was to help you. This is not something strange to Scripture. You can find the same thing applied to God the Father in Psalm 113.6, where it says, Who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth? It would never be said, this lowering or humbling of self is a dishonor to God. It shows his glory, for it tells us of the infinite distance between the creation and the creator. God has to stoop down to view his creation. In the same way, it should be understood of Christ as the second person of the triune God, his humbling himself by assuming a human nature was simply his covering his divinity with a veil of flesh. He hid his glory from us with his flesh and blood. This shows us the infinite condescension 
of his divine nature without the loss of his divine glory. Let's consider for a moment what we mean by condescension. This does not imply that Christ was arrogant. It means that being God and the creator, he had to assume a position far below that which was rightly his to start with in order to come into his creation as a part of that creation. This is taking on a human nature by Christ has to be the highest highest sense of condescension ever. You cannot come from a higher place to a lower place than Christ. Some of you will remember the name Dr. George Sandor. He was a good friend of mine, a Jewish man and a brilliant engineer. Uh, I was privileged to present him the gospel. When I first met him, he was already under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and he was searching for answers. So when I came along, he wanted to hear the gospel. So I gave him the gospel, started in Genesis and went all the way through the Revelation. He listened intently. When we finished, he rejected the gospel. He rejected it based on this idea that Christ was God come in the flesh. He could not believe God would so humiliate himself. Well, I had the privilege of continuing to be friends with him. It was only after he came to see God's sovereignty, his power and love together, that he accepted Christ's humiliation. He then testified of his trust in Christ alone for his salvation. He recognized that it was only in Christ coming and taking on our nature that we could be saved. Christ came from his place of glory and honor with the Father to our world, entering it just as we did, submitting himself to everything just as we must. He came down, he condescended, he humbled himself to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. I want to consider this morning a part of Christ's humiliation. This sermon will look at the humiliation of his birth and life. First, we will consider his humiliation in the state of his birth. Second, we shall see his humiliation in his life. Christ is called the God-man. What this means is that Jesus Christ is God who came down to earth, took on flesh and blood, becoming a man. A man with two natures. These two natures were the divine nature and the human nature. They were not intermingled. They were not in a situation to pervert one another. But they were separate, put together in one body. Therefore, the person of Christ has to understand in two different respects, first, as God, and secondly, as the mediator. As God, he is from all eternity a divine person and will forever be God, even if he never became the mediator. But you already know, he did become the mediator. Whenever we refer to him as a mediator, we must understand he is the God-man. In this sense, Christ as mediator has been seen and understood from before the foundation of the world. The scripture calls him the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. Let's consider his humility first 
through his being a child. Luke 2, verses 4 through 7. Joseph also went up from the city of Nazareth into Judah, Judea to the city of David, which he called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn, a son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Christ has submitted himself to the state of his infancy. He humbled himself and took on this human nature. Christ submitted to the plan of the triune God and agreed to enter this own, his, his own creation in a way common to all creatures. We need to consider this with care. To be an infant is to be in a state of complete helplessness. Is there a, a more inactive stage of life? Is there a more, more com- need for compassion on a baby than there is for anybody else in this world? In this state, you do not have the ability to do anything from yourself. You can't even enjoy God because of your lack of spiritual, mental, and physical powers. An infant is subject to much evil and it's powerless to resist it. The one thing an infant is aware of is pain and discomfort. Yet, it is without the ability to ease its discomfort. This only makes it the object of compassion. For it does not know why or from where the discomfort arises and has no means of addressing it. This is the state into which our Savior entered the world and through it discovered a great degree of his humiliation. There are some some who believe that Jesus as an infant had the full use of all his faculties. They believed he could do anything a grown man could do. However, That is not what the scriptures teach. Christ came to redeem men, to redeem them from the sinful state, and that included infants. Christ, therefore, experienced the same states, the same tribulations as all men share. The wisdom and goodness of God knew that he must be like all other men in everything, except he was not born with the guilt of Adam's sin. Christ came and went through all the stages of life just as you do. He did this for you that you might know that one in heaven understood your frailties. He then is able to sympathize with you in your miseries. So in passing through the state of infancy, he's able to afford a certain compassion on all infants and on all men. Some say he had the knowledge of the divine in his infancy and could have used it to undergo any difficulties. But I would call your attention to the scripture, Luke 2.52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. He was growing just like we grew. Does it not appear that he, as all other infants, had to go through the process of growing up in his human nature in both body and mind. 
I hope you can see that Christ began his humiliation in the same state of natural infirmities that all men are liable to and enter this world with. I also want you to see the wonder of it, the love exhibited to all those called to be his. He has painted a picture for us of a perfect life. He did all of this and placed himself in this much lower state on behalf of those who are his people in order to win for them salvation. In another way, the parents of Jesus added to his humiliation. He was born of a woman of very low degree in the world. I mean, these were the poorest of the poor. She was not one whose circumstances and character made her above others, calling for a greater degree of respect. Matthew 13, verses 54 through 56. When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Josie, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? The mother of Jesus was blessed. She was honored above all other women in a spiritual sense. We see this in the greeting of the angel in Luke one twenty-eight. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. Yet, you can see she was far from being honored in her own hometown. Yes, she was of the line of David. She was from a princely line. There's no doubt about that. But the scepter had long since passed from it. So when the scriptures say that this child was to sit on the throne of David, we understand that was not passed to him by his parents, but was given to him by God. The scripture is speaking of the throne of David, is really equating the throne to the promise made to David. The promise was that God would set one on the throne whose kingdom he would establish forever. This clearly means that what relates to the establishment of David's kingdom as referred to in Christ and the eternity it represents is far more reaching than Solomon and his sons. The eternity of David's line is found only in God sending Christ through David's line to establish his eternal kingdom. This is the meaning of the angel's words. He shall sit on the throne of his father David. He did not have a right to David's crown by natural descent, for that had long ago passed away. If you will honestly look at what the scripture teaches about this, I think you can clearly see it. Isaiah 11.1 1 declares, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. What does it mean when we say out of his roots? It means it's been cut down. And so we got a branch that grows up out of that root. This is a direct reference to Jesus as the coming Christ or Savior. This does not in any way tell us that Christ will inherit David's crown in a political sense or by natural descent. Isaiah 53, 2 says, 
for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and a root out of dry ground. This makes abundantly clear that Christ came from a family that had lost his place of importance. The line of David was dead politically. It was dry ground. Look at how Mary was treated as they came to Bethlehem. She took lodging in a stable and wrapped her child in swaddling cloths and laid him in the manger. Now, I want to say something about these swaddling cloths. Now, I have in the past been of the opinion that these were just rags they got from the stable. But after studying this for this lesson, I came to realize that wasn't true. Mary knew that she was close to delivery. When she left home, the standard would have been that she would have prepared the swaddling cloths that she was going to use at that time. And that was a standard fare for a baby at that time was to, what do they call it, when they wrap them up real tight. Uh, so that's what was planned to be done. So you can't make the rag, make these out, out to be rags. They were not. All right, Christ entered this world as an infant wrapped in swaddling clothes, claws, and resting in his feet in a feed trough. All this because his parents were not important enough to get him a place in the inn. These were the poorest of the poor. Nobody cared about their needs at all. Joseph, whom God chose as his earthly protector, was not a wealthy and powerful man. He was simply a man who earned his living by his hands. Joseph was a carpenter, and Jesus' enemies always reminded him of this fact. I would ask you to remember, it was only Jesus' enemies that ever called him a carpenter. True believers should never denigrate him by calling him a carpenter. And please, don't think I'm throwing off on carpenters. I'm not, because I'm the son of a carpenter. I've seen bumper stickers in this town that said, I work for a Jewish carpenter. That has to be the biggest insult in the world to Christ. Because he's not a carpenter. He is the son of God. He is the savior of men's souls. What I want you to know is that Jesus was and is far more than a carpenter. He's that sovereign Lord Almighty. His parents and their position in this world was another part of the humiliation that Christ entered into when he took on flesh and blood to be your savior. The last circumstances of our Lord's Savior's birth which show his humiliation are the places in which he was born and lived, Bethlehem and Nazareth. Micah 5.2 But you, Bethlehem of Rada, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. Once this little village of Bethlehem was esteemed to be great because David came from it. Yet, in the time since David, this village had become a small insignificant town in Judah. The prophet said of it, you are little among the thousands of Judah. Bethlehem had lost its place of importance in everyone's eyes except in God's eyes. As for Nazareth, the place where Christ was raised, it was despised by the Jews. Remember when Nathaniel was told of Jesus and where he came from? What did he say? He said, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
The Jews used this as a weapon against Jesus, saying no prophet could come from Nazareth. They didn't even believe a prophet could come from the region in which Nazareth was located, Galilee. But we put that to rest when we looked at Jonah, because Jonah came from Galilee. Now get this. Wait a minute, where am I? Sorry. They didn't even believe a prophet could come from anywhere in the region, even uh, which was located in Galilee. Look at Matthew, or, or let me read Matthew 2, 23. And he came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, and which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now, I want you to get this. This is very important. This is something you might run into sometime. Nowhere in the Bible does any prophet ever say Christ will be called a Nazarene. So people bring this up as a great mistake in the Bible. What they repeatedly say, though, what these prophets completely say, is that he will be hated and despised. In Christ's day, a Nazarene meant they were hated and despised. His living and growing up in Nazareth was all a part of his humiliation. It made him completely unacceptable to most Jews. The humiliation of Jesus does not come to an end with what he suffered through the circumstances of his birth. It continues with all the circumstances of his life. All of this humiliation goes back to this one decree of God that brought Christ into this world and made him the God-man, the decree of the incarnation. It was this decree that instituted this process of humiliation. We find several instances of this humiliation throughout his life. One of the ways we see Christ's condescension is through his submitting unto the law. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. By submitting to the law, he placed himself voluntarily under an obligation. That obligation to be obedient to God the Father. Obedient in everything which would be required of him in his earthly walk. This was a necessary result of his incarnation. Why? Because when he became a man, he was under the law which no creature is nor can be exempt from. So Christ could not be exempted from the law. Yet, as we see, his being under the law was a totally voluntary decision. This decision to become a man was an infinite condescension and brought him under the law, which was a part of his humiliation. Why would this be humiliation? Because God himself is the law. Matthew 5.17 tells us that Christ came to fulfill the law. That was his most important thing. He came to do for us what we couldn't do, right? And what couldn't we do? We couldn't keep the law perfectly. The only way in which the law can be fulfilled is through perfect obedience. There is not one single event in the life of Jesus that brought about this fulfillment. The, there is not a single one single event that caused this to be fulfilled. It was his whole life his perfect obedience in every thought, word, and deed. Matthew 5, 17 tells us Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. 
He made under the law, therefore he became, he was made under the law, therefore he became subject to the curse of the law. However, since he lived a perfect life, the curse has no power over him because he never sinned. Remember the curse was sin and you will surely die? That's what he told Adam at the very beginning. Because Jesus chose voluntarily to take on your sin, the curse fell upon him on your behalf. And he suffered the curse for you on Calvary's cross. My friends, this has to be the greatest aspect of his humiliation to suffer the curse when you are innocent in the place of another who is guilty. Much of his humiliation came at the hands of his own creatures. Matthew 27, 27 through 31. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him, took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took off the robe off him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. As an infant, Herod sought his life. And had not Joseph been warned by the angel, he would have been killed with the infants of Babylon, with the infants of Bethlehem. After he was grown and had become his ministry, had begun his ministry, he suffered at the hands of men continually. It was an ongoing thing, day after day. The Jewish people would have gladly accepted him had he come to deliver them from the yoke of Rome. Many followed him when they thought this was his purpose. But they all turned away as he revealed the truth of his mission. During his trial, he was treated with absolute contempt by the soldiers and then crucified by the very creatures he had made and given life. They did not know his glory as the Son of Man. They didn't see him and know his deity. John 1.10 tells us that though the world was made through him, the world did not know him. The world didn't know him. They didn't know him. They didn't see his glory. Why? Because they knew him not. They did not desire to know him. They didn't want anything to do with him. The prophet in Isaiah 53.3 said, And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. They questioned his mission and denied he was the Christ, even though it had been confirmed to them over and over again by the miracles he did. The Jews simply would not believe him. They even, they even came and asked him directly, are you the Christ? He replied, I told you, but you did not believe. And then he turned and appealed to the works which he did in the Father's name which were more than sufficient to prove his claim that he was the Christ. Still, still they were obstinate and hardened their hearts in unbelief. They didn't stop there. They accused him of doing his works by the power of the devil. What a terrible accusation that the Son of God came working in the power of Satan. They did this in the face of the greatest light possible. 
and with the full conviction that it was a false charge. Because of this hardness, he denounced them and he declared, this sin will not be forgiven. This is the unpardonable sin. To have that light of Christ shining in your heart and to refuse it. They were not content to stop at this. They also went after him with attacks against his moral character. They did this for no other reason than he offered kindness to those who needed him. He conversed and touched those with spiritual and physical problems. This just tore the Pharisees up. They couldn't handle it. They accused him of being gluttonous, a wine-bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. But you know what? It's through that friendship that our souls were saved. They also charged him with being a deceiver of the people. He told them things that they said were not true. The truth was so bright, though, that it shone around him and through all the works he did until no one with a right heart could ignore it. It caused a lot of talk among the common people, John seven twelve, and there was much complaining among the people about him. Some said he is good. Others said no. On the contrary, he deceives the people. There were so there were also times that, that the people didn't even want him around. Now, can you imagine that? We're going to run the Son of Man off. Here was the Savior, and the people asked him to leave. You remember the Gerasenes where they came with the, the man who has a many the legion of demons in him, and Christ cast those demons out into a herd of swine. Some of the shepherds ran back and told people what happened in town. Those people came out there, and after talking with him a few minutes, they asked him to leave. These people didn't understand the privilege that was theirs. They asked the Son of God to go away. They were afraid of this one sent to be a blessing to all men. These creatures which he had created also tried to kill him. Was this not the greatest expression of contempt and hatred that could be shown? When he would tell them he was divine, they would pick up stones and try to kill him. Even those who knew him best, as he declared his mission in Nazareth, his own hometown, they tried to throw him off a cliff. Hebrews 12.3 tells us that Christ has endured much hostility from sinners against himself. The prophet Isaiah in 53.3 said of him, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He lived his whole life in this very world he had created, ignored and rejected by the very creatures he had made. What humiliation he suffered at the hands of those he had so loved. Christ also humbled himself in his submission to those sinless infirmities that are common to human nature. Luke twenty-two forty-four, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This is one of our verses from Sunday school this morning. Some of those infirmities, like his anguish at facing God's wrath on our behalf, came from the sin and misery of others. Jesus says in Isaiah 63, 9, In all their afflictions, he was afflicted. This shows us his empathy and compassion 
toward his people. Sometimes he was grieved for the sins of the Jewish nation and for the contempt they showed toward the gospel he brought them. In Isaiah 49, 4, the Messiah says, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and in vain. When he had come to the close of his ministry, he looked down. He looked down upon Jerusalem and saw a self-ruined people. And Luke 19, 41 says, he beheld the city and wept over it. How much this shows his love and the humiliation he took upon himself in his incarnation. Remember that at times his disciples, even after all he had taught them and all they had seen, would lapse back into their unbelief. He suffered with them for three years in their behalf. And what happened when they arrested him? They scattered. They went and hid behind closed doors. Not to mention the normal afflictions caused by his low position. Things such as hunger, thirst, fatigue, weariness, poverty, and the lack of normal necessities. All of these were sufferings he underwent in the flesh. The state of his humiliation in which he lived his whole life. My friends, Jesus Christ came. He suffered all of this and more for but one reason. One reason alone. He gave up all the riches of heaven and the glory of eternal life. 2 Corinthians 8 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Have you believed? Have you believed in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Have you, with a broken and contrite heart, called out to him for salvation? There's no other name under heaven and on earth whereby you can be saved from your sins. Humble yourself. Humble yourself and call on him, and he will hear. And he will save your soul. That's what he came for. That was the one reason he came, to bring salvation to you. This was the very thing that caused Dr. Sandor to accept Christ as his Savior. He saw the wonder of what Christ had done. He first recognized and through creation, it through creation and then heard the promise of eternal life through the words of the gospel and believed. He saw that indeed, by grace, God did humble himself to save men. You need to search your hearts and make sure that you understand that. Let's pray. Glorious God, Almighty Lord, we come this day with thankful hearts for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. You sent him into the world as your word. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came forth from you, Father, full of grace and truth. He came making himself nothing, taking on our very nature, being made in our likeness. He did this to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came and lived the perfect life, died the atoning death, and won the resurrection victory. He did this so we could come through him into eternal life. Please, Father, hear our praise that it might bring glory in Christ's name. Amen. If you would take your hymnals.